And so Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 46 uh, today. And this passage is chronologically, time-wise, where we're at. We're just a few days before the cross. So if you've ever wondered, you know, what was Jesus doing the days before he went up to the cross, you find that in Matthew chapter 21, 22. Um, the book kind of culminates in a resurrected Jesus sending his disciples out and saying, go into the world and make disciples. But we're in the last section of Jesus' life. Now, <clears throat> in these final days, the religious authorities, they're attempting to take Jesus out. And here in this passage today, we have three groups of people that try to trap or decredit, demerit, uh, discredit Jesus. And one of them is the Pharisees. You know who they are by this point. They've become our friends. They're not our friends, sort of. Well, we're familiar with them. They're acquaintances. Um, they always bring something to the story. And then the Sadducees, and we've talked about who they are before, but there's another group in this passage called the Herodians, and you may not be familiar with them, but I will explain who they are when we get to that section. Looking into these arguments today, essentially what it is is these different groups, they come to Jesus with some sort of trap, some sort of thing to just discredit him. And as we're looking in on these three things, we're going to learn some doctrine, some all kinds of other stuff, just by learning about how Jesus deals with these groups. And then the last section of the message, the fourth section, is then Jesus interrogating the Pharisees. So it's like three groups interrogating Jesus, and then Jesus interrogates the Pharisees. And at the end of it, I'll just give you the, the spoiler alert here. Uh, at the end of it, Jesus silences all of them. Their mouths are stopped, and that's the last confrontations that Jesus will have. Uh, and then the next thing, you know, is coming, is coming to the cross after a few more teachings. So that's where we're going today. Really the main point that I've taken through this myself is Jesus is the authority on all things. He's just the authority on all things. And we see these religious professionals and these different people all trying to discredit Jesus. And he silences all of them because Jesus is the authority on all things. And I'll tell you what, that makes me feel great, that I trust my life into the hands of the Christ, the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God who is authority in all things. And I see that through this passage here today. So it's just a great uh, boost to my confidence because my confidence is in him. And so and that's what I think we'll see. And there's just a whole bunch in here, though. So if you will, if you're not there, open to Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to pick it up at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. 
Again, Lord, as we turn to the word, make the book live to us. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior. Give us the things that we need. Lord, we approach your word today as it is your word. It has authority over our lives, Lord, and we thank you. We're so grateful for it here today. Lord, speak to us. Beyond the words of a man, may your Holy Spirit teach us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The trap. So the Pharisees are the religious purists of the day. They're the, like the back to the Bible group. They came out of the period between the Old Testament and New Testament. Does anybody remember that? The 400 what years? Silent years, right? The intertestamental period is also what it's called. During that time, Judaism got really liberal and really affected by the Roman culture, the Greek culture. And so there were some Jews that said, we don't want anything to do with culture. We want to be separatists, which that's what Pharisee means, is a separatist. And these were the sort of people where they were in the holy huddle and they were just the religious purists, right? And you're familiar with them at this point. They are usually enemies of this next group, the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, as you can tell by their name, Herod, they're Jews that support Herod. And so they're, they're Jews that are all about Rome and all about the, you know, they say, well, this is a good thing, this Romanization. And so these guys were arch enemies normally before the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees would have said, you know, something like, they're worldly sellouts, right? And, but they come together here and they're united in their hatred of Jesus. They join efforts to trap Jesus and notice what they do. They come with flattery. They say, you don't regard the person of men, Jesus. You don't care about anybody. And it, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about people. What they're doing is they're going to, and they're saying to Jesus, hey, you're a real straight shooter. You don't care what man says. You just preach what God says. And they come and they try to flatter Jesus. Now, I want to make a point here real quickly before we move on past this that I think is a good thing for application. When you're dealing with manipulators, sometimes what they will do is they'll try to flatter you. Have you ever dealt with that? You know somebody's trying to take advantage of you, and then so what they'll do is they'll flatter you. You know, oh, Reverend Tyler, like, oh, come on, man. Like, what does that even mean, Reverend? You know, so that's just kind of a good thing to notice right here. Um, especially you're in ministry, especially you're going through life, and, and, you know, somebody's giving you flattery, so your red flag should go up and say, well, I'm going to just kind of take it easy and, and see what this person is after here. So, Dealing with manipulators, sometimes they flatter you. Verse 17, here's their question. He says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the word lawful, he's getting at, is it like lawful mosaic law, right? In other words, he's saying, should Jews be paying these taxes to Rome, right? Now, from what I told you about the Pharisees and the Herodians already, you can understand why this question, why they think they really have Jesus trapped, right? Because if Jesus says yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, right? If he says that just straight out, then the Pharisees are going to say, man, this guy's a sellout. But if he says, no, no, we're Jews. We shouldn't be paying this Roman oppressive government taxes. No way, you know? Then the Herodians are going to be after him and say, see, he's insurrection right here. And they're going to get him on charges right there. So they think they've got him trapped. But look at his response. He goes on and says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Jesus always understands when somebody's trying to get over on him. 
And his answer demonstrates two things that he gives, right? Where he says, you know, bring me the image or bring me the coin whose image is this, and then render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, render to God what belongs to God, right? This answer says two things. One of them, first of all, that the government has a legitimate place in people's lives, right? He calls them hypocrites because it's like they're using the roads in Rome. They're probably standing on a Roman road. They're using everything going on around them. And he's like, should we pay taxes? Like, what are you talking about? You're totally using, you've got Roman money in your pocket. And so Jesus is saying that there is a legitimate place for government. And there are those Christians today that are just like, oh, you know, the government this and the government that. And it's like, I can understand where you've got some issues with the government. But at the same time, keep it in your mind that they have a legitimate place in your life and you should pay taxes because you use the stuff, you know, going on here. I mean, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? If you're going to use Caesar's stuff, you have to pay Caesar's debt, you know, and that's how it works. Uh, you know, and Jesus is saying that the government has a legit place. The other thing that his answer demonstrates, though, is that God has a sphere of authority over people as well. You've heard this term as a Christian, dual citizenship, your dual citizenship. You remember in the book of Philippians, Paul says, I'm a citizen of heaven. Really, the, the question here coming from the heart of the Jews is like, how can we be people of God, but yet live in this pagan place with these pagan rules and all this other stuff? Like, is it possible to have, you know, dual citizenship? Is there a conflict? Can I be right with God and yet still pay Caesar, right? Jesus says, actually, what you should be doing is paying Caesar and be, you know, but make sure that your authority, you know, that you're under the authority of God that you have, to, you have to balance these two things, right? There's, the picture of Caesar is on the coin, but the image of God is on you, right? So that's how do you live that out as a Christian? Well, what you do as a Christian is you say, Romans chapter 13, a bunch of other places, I'm going to follow the laws of the land so long as they don't cause me to break the laws of the Lord, right? You remember in the book of Acts, where after the healing happened, Acts chapter 3, remember the guy that's been lame from birth at the gate, beautiful, comes and lifts him up, dancing around, religious authorities pull in the disciples and say, hey, you stop preaching this name. And remember what they say? They say, we're going to preach in Jesus' name, and whether it's right for us to obey God or you, you decide, right? So that was a picture of the government trying to infringe and go over the authority of God. Say, you can't preach in this name anymore. They said, ah, you, you can work that out with God. We're going to preach. So there are times where maybe the government tries to get over on that authority of God and they try to cross over. And that's, you know, as a Christian where you need to, you know, work that out with you and the word and the Lord. And there's a time to not obey, right? But for the most part, you know, we're driving on their streets, then we should go their speed limit, right? Where, you know, there's the laws, we should follow them. We shouldn't complain about taxes. I always turn my nose up at people that complain about taxes. I'm like, geez, are you kidding me? Do you know the benefits that you get in this country? Uh, anyway, so the balance between being a citizen of heaven and yet a citizen of Mason City, Iowa, you know, you follow the laws of the land, so long as they don't conflict with the laws of God. Here comes the next group to attack Jesus in verse 23, the Sadducees. Here they come to discredit Jesus. 
<clears throat> the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, important detail, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, that's referring to this doctrine called the, it's, it's a law from the Mosaic law called the Leverit or the Leverit. I don't know. It looks like Leverite, but it's, I think it's pronounced uh, Leverit, marriage. You guys ever heard of it? Deuteronomy 25. Essentially what happens is if you're, if you're a Jew and you're married and you, you die, you know, as a guy, uh, then your brother has to marry your wife and has to raise up kids. And the reason is, is because you don't let the family name uh, drop off. Uh, in this culture. And it's actually a really funny process. If you don't want to perform this duty, you can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. It's actually in the book of Ruth. Um, you guys remember the book of Ruth where Boaz, uh, you know, he wants to maybe get married to Ruth, but there's a brother that is in line ahead to come redeem and, and Ruth is part of the redeeming the land and all that stuff. You can read about it in the book of Ruth. I'm not going to get in depth on this, but that's what he's referring to here. The Sadducee is coming to Jesus and he's saying, based on Leverett marriage, um, there, um, <clears throat> Verse 25, there were seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. The second, likewise, also the second, and the third, even to the seventh. So this gal had been married seven times, seven different brothers. Now, nobody had even started looking in the Ovaltine to see like what she's putting in there, you know. But seven of them die, right? And then finally the lady dies and they go, hey, verse 26 or uh, verse 27, last of all, the woman dies. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So you get the idea, right? Leverite marriage, Leverite marriage says you have to marry, you know, your dead brother's wife. It happens seven times. Now, in the resurrection, see, the Sadducees are suggesting, like, in heaven, it's going to be these guys, like, fighting over this woman. Like, she's my wife. No, she's mine. And all seven of them are going to be like, I don't know. And she's going to be like, well, I guess I get to go out on dates with all of you or, you know, or something. Yeah, I don't know what they're picturing. But the error that they have here is they assume that life on earth is the same as life in heaven. They're just assuming that things continue on just like they would, like the marriage would be the same in heaven and people would be the same. And the reason they're putting this forth, this is like a preposterous question, right? This is saying like, this is like saying, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? You ever heard that one? People trying to be like ridiculous, like, oh, this God that you worship, he's so big, like, could he make it, you know, how about, how about that? And you're like, it's ridiculous, you know, uh, it's one of these things that they're coming, trying to discredit the doctrine of resurrection because Jesus teaches resurrection, and so they're trying to discredit Jesus, right? So <clears throat> that's the whole point. Now look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 29, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? 
God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus answers, first of all, and he talks to these Sadducees, which were professionals in the Torah. They believed the five books of the Bible were first five books. They believed the books of Moses were inspired, nothing else was. But they considered themselves to be Bible professionals. And Jesus, I love it what he says to him, Verse 29, he says, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. And so I always get a kick out of Jesus telling the religious authorities that. It's kind of funny to me. You think you know the word, but you don't know the word. Here's why you're tripped up, because you don't know the Bible, right? And that's where a lot of people get into trouble today. They don't know what the Bible says about resurrection. They believe that it's nowhere in the first five books of the Bible. And they don't know the power of God to resurrect people. That's what Jesus means there. Verse 30 says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So when you die and you go to heaven, you're not going to have the same sort of body and being as you do here. It says right here that you are going to be like angels, not given in marriage. You're not, marriage isn't going to exist in the same context that it does here. And you're not going to procreate. Angels, apparently, in, this sense, in the sense that humans will be like them, is they'll be asexual. There won't be death, so there's no need for procreation. And what we can gather from the scriptures is humans will not be sexual male and female beings the same way as they are here. And Jesus says, you don't know the scripture, and, and this is what's going to happen in heaven. And they'll be like this. <clears throat> now, here's a side note. When somebody dies and then the person gets all, you know, the family is hurt and everything, they get emotional and then they say, um, well, he's just up there. He's an angel now. He's not an angel now. If he's a Christian, he's like an angel. That's what it says here. But when humans die, they do not become angels. According to Jesus, they become like angels if they're in Christ. But they're not angels up there um, looking down at us. Verse 31, he says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now, he's going to answer their question. He's going to get right to the heart of their problem with the doctrine of resurrection. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> and then he gets into this um, statement. Um, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So how in the world does this deal with the question of resurrection. Well, if there was no resurrection, what Jesus is getting at is, he would have said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would have said what? I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says there, First, going on there, he says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, Jesus, you know, the, the Bible, God used present tense. I am the God of these people, meaning that they're still alive. I'm their God. Not that I was their God, right? <clears throat> Genius. 
that Jesus can pull the doctrine of the resurrection out of the Torah, out of this thing. Now, what I want to point out is there are people today that play um, fast and loose with scriptures, right? They're kind of like, ah, you know, the Bible's got some good stuff in it or whatever. And, you know, you, you guys are kind of fanatical that take it like every word is inspired. Well, Jesus thinks even the tense that the words use being used is important, Right? And so Jesus was into inerrancy is from what I can tell. Like he looks at the scripture and he says, you you notice the difference? One word could have been off here. But Jesus looks at the details of scripture because every word of this is inspired by God and is meaningful and is meant to be studied and examined, right? God is not the God of the dead, verse 32, but of the living. God is alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are also alive too. Now, I think a word of application is good here, too, because there are people that are going to come and try to discredit Christ, you know, to you in your life. And you've probably experienced that, especially if you're outspoken about your faith. And um, some of you are probably extremely outspoken about your faith. And the more outspoken you are, the more opposition you probably get, you know, and people try to attack you and so on. But I want to give you uh, something to think about here. You learn from this passage that these are the religious authorities of the day. They're trying to hit Jesus with every objection that they can come with. And I just want you to be encouraged that in Christianity, in Christ, you're on the side of truth, right? Thousands and thousands of years, nobody's been able to come and say anything that discredits any of this stuff. Now, you might not know every answer to everything in the Bible, but don't let that be a hindrance in your life. Don't let that, don't let that trip you up. Um, when somebody comes and tries to discredit Christianity. There are no new conspiracy theories about the Bible. If somebody comes out next week and says, oh, we just discovered this thing, and they've got a Discovery Channel, History Channel show, like, new unveiled truth about the Bible. And it's like, all that stuff is bogus, man. It's been thousands of years, and none of these people with any of their PhDs and degrees and all this stuff, nobody's been able to discredit what Christ says and what God says in his word. So, just be comfortable in that fact, and you can, be a, you can stand firm on that, right? If you're a faithful witness, you're going to run into some Sadducees, um, but they don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. Somebody comes to you and says, the Bible has contradictions. Just say, look, just show me two of them. It'll stop right there every single time, right? And if they have thought through them, it's like, well, thoughtful answers about every supposed contradiction. I mean, this isn't anything new, right? So moving on, here comes the next group and the last group. So we've had the Herodians, Sadducees, now the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are also enemies of the Sadducees, right? And they heard that Jesus shut down the Sadducees. So they're like, oh yeah, cool. Let's go ask Jesus a question. And that's what happens in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, uh, that's not a lawyer like you think. It's a professional in the law, uh, the Mosaic law in the Bible. It's not a defense attorney or some guy on a billboard that says, call me if you get in a lawnmower accident or whatever. This lawyer asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, there's a lot there. So this question was hotly debated at this time. The Pharisees had went through the Old Testament and taken out 613 laws that they believed needed to be followed meticulously. They thought, God put 613 laws, we have to observe them. Then they wrote the, you know, the Mishnah and the other rabbis' writings on top of those, thousands of more. And so what they did, though, is they debated which ones are the weightiest commandments, right? And so they come and they ask Jesus this question. And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So he quotes, first of all, he quotes two scriptures of the Old Testament. First of all, this one, which is Deuteronomy 6.5. This is also known to the Jews as, does anybody know? The Shema. You ever heard that? <clears throat> the Jews called this the Shema. They used to recite this all the time. Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one, our God is one. You know, it's part of what they call the Shema. Okay? And, Ju and Jesus quotes this first of all. Now, love here is the word agape. And so what Jesus is saying is this agape love. The first commandment is for God's people to agape him, to love him with their heart, soul, and all their mind. So to love God, first of all, too, you, you guys are familiar with the term agape love. There's different words used to translate the word love in, in Greek, different meanings. Eros is a type of love. It's erotic love that a husband and a wife have for each other. It's part of that uh, husband and marriage uh, in a wife type of love. Then there's another called storge, which is like a family sort of love. Phileo, which is a brotherly love. And then you have agape, which is this word that describes really the supernatural love that God has for us. This sort of love is fully self-giving. It doesn't demand anything in return. Where brotherly love is kind of like, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your... That'd be weird if a couple of guys were scratching each other's back. But, but the, you've heard that statement though, right? Uh, that's kind of a give and take sort of love. Whereas agape is not a give and take sort of love. It's a love that gives and gives and gives fully. Gives of itself. It's totally non-selfish. And so what Jesus is saying to them, that the greatest commandment is, the number one most important thing for God's people to do is to give themselves unreserved, completely to him with their heart, soul, and mind. Now, first of all, your heart, that's all your affections. It's the seat of your being. It's the core of your being, right? The, the soul, the soul is your uniqueness. That's your personality. It's the place, you know, theologians debate, philosophers debate, you know, uh, what's the difference between the soul and the heart and um, soulish maybe being more of like where the, the hobbies, the personalities, the type of music you like, what makes you uniquely you? That part of you is to be given to God in its entirety. Then he says with your mind, Right? That means the intellect is to be used in the study of the word. You're to be using your intellect to renew your mind in the scriptures, right? 
I've met some Christians that don't really like much for studying the word. And it's like, well, Jesus says this is the number one commandment is that you love your Lord your God with your mind. And if you don't love studying the word, how is it that you love the Lord your God with your mind? You know, like I have to love my wife with my mind even, you know, like I have to use my brain in how I love my wife, you know, like it's important for me to study who she is and to think about her and to, you know, I've got to use my brain even in that, but we need to use our brain in, in loving the Lord. That's what he says, your heart, your soul, your strength, your total being. Jesus says, this is the first commandment is this is all given to God. Then at that point, that's, that's what we would call our vertical relationship. You know why we call it that? You've ever heard those terms, vertical and horizontal relationships? First of all, a vertical, you know, you think about up and down. So this is me with God, vertical. If, if I'm doing, you know, what God desires, uh, then in this vertical relationship with him, then my whole being is given to him. You know, mind, heart, soul, strength, everything. So my vertical is taken care of now. And now Jesus goes to the horizontal plane, right, in the next verse. And he says, and the second is like it, verse 39. They didn't ask for what the second greatest commandment is. It's kind of interesting because I, I think, I'm just reading it in a little bit to the text, though. I think Jesus offers the second because these back-to-the-Bible religionist sort of people were pretty bad at the second commandment. You know, they thought that they were right with God. But what Jesus is saying is if you really are right with God, you're also right with your neighbor, right? It tends to be that the religious, purist, sort of back to the bible kind of like legalistic sort of people are very good with doctrine, but not so good with loving their neighbor, you know? And I think that's why he goes ahead and offers it here as he says, uh, the second is like it, verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This deals with the horizontal, our relationship with our fellow man and woman. This is quoted from Leviticus 19.18. You say, who's my neighbor? Well, if you want a really you know, in-depth teaching about who your neighbor is, you can read, um, you guys know that where Jesus talked about the guy that... Um, went down to Jericho and he got beat up on the side of the road and the priest went by him, didn't do anything. And then Levite went by, but then finally the Samaritan, and it's like, oh, Samaritan is a derogatory term. The Samaritan came and helped the guy, right? The parable, I don't even know if it's a parable. It could be a story. People debate whether it's a parable or not. But the good Samaritan answers the question, who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? It's anybody around you. It just means fellow human beings. And so Jesus says the number one commandment is to love God, and the second commandment is to love anybody around you as yourself. Now, that's heavy duty. These are the two greatest commandments. How do you do this? Well, the love a person has for him or herself in the sense of like looking out for yourself, caring about your best interests, should also be directed towards others. There are some people that have like really screwed this verse up and said, you have to love yourself before you can love your neighbor. And that's ridiculous because the Bible says that um, all of us love ourselves. That's kind of the problem is we all love ourselves too much. Somebody will say, I hate myself. And then you'll say, well, why do you hate yourself? And they'll say, because I'm ugly. And they'll say, no, if you really hated yourself, you'd be glad that you were ugly. 
you know, I hate myself because I'm so poor and down and out. Well, if you really hated yourself, you'd be glad that you were poor and down and out. If you really hated yourself, you know, nobody hates themselves, right? Nobody here hates themselves, I guarantee, because I see you, you put clothes on, you're here, you know, you brushed your teeth, do your hygiene. I'm sure that all of you brushed your teeth this morning, you know? So I know you love yourself, you know? And so when they take this verse and say, you've got to love yourself before you can love your neighbor, no, that's incorrect. Here's what is correct. You need to love God and have your relationship straight with God before you can agape anybody else. Because if your relationship isn't straight with God, you're going to love people expecting something in return. And actually, your relationships are going to be more like codependent idolatry than they are actual love. This is why you have to be right with God first then you can love your neighbor freely, right? Now, <clears throat> he says something that's just so profound, right? He says that all, on these two commandments, verse 40, all of the law and the prophets hang on this. Do you know what he's saying? You want a summary of every law in the Old Testament? I'll give it to you right now. Jesus just did. Love God and love people. The Ten Commandments, these two verses that Jesus quoted, Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema, deals with the first table of the law. Have you ever heard that the Ten Commandments split into two tables? The first one deals with our relationship with God, verses one through, commandment one through four. Five through ten deals with a relationship horizontally. Love the Lord your God, first table of the law. Love your neighbors yourself, second table of the law. And if you do those things, you've fulfilled all the Ten Commandments, right? In other words, Jesus put it positively. See, if I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength... I won't make other false gods and worship them. I won't have any gods before him. I won't uh, disrespect Christ, which is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, right? I won't take his name in vain. Now, that doesn't mean to say, gee, you know, that doesn't, that's not what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. What it means to take the Lord's name in vain is to say, I'm going to follow Jesus and then not do it because you took his name in in vain. You said, I'm a follower of Yahweh, but you didn't follow Yahweh. That's taking his name in vain, right? So if I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, I don't have to be told not to do these other things, right? Now, if I love my neighbor as myself, I don't have to be told, don't covet the guy's stuff. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. I don't have to be told those things if I would love God and love my neighbor. That's why Jesus puts in the positive here. He says, you want to know what the whole Old Testament's about? Love God supremely. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a good time to make a point because some of you are probably getting condemned, especially legalistic type that always feel like you fall short, right? Okay, you're probably getting condemned right now. Get this. If somebody could love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and soul, and their neighbor as themselves, Christ wouldn't have had to come and die on the cross, right? It's because we can't do these things that Jesus had to come and do them, right? So don't feel condemned when, we're, when Jesus is saying these great commandments. You should say, man, thank you, Jesus, that you live these things perfectly on my behalf. And through faith in him now, his perfect neighboring <laughs> is applied to my account, Right? And his perfect love for the Father is applied to my account. That's what grace is. That's what the gospel is, is that, yeah, I fall short in these things. I can't do them. But Jesus did them on my behalf, and I have faith in him. And that everything that Jesus did, everything good that he did is applied to my account. And everything bad that I did is erased in God's sight. That's good stuff.
Now, that doesn't mean that obedience has no place in the Christian life. I mean, I, but I don't try to do these things to be saved. I want to do these things because they're good for me and because I am saved. It's always good to, you know, you get to these points where you, you can just tell some people are condemned. Like, oh, I know, I don't love my neighbors. I say, yeah, I, I get it, you know. Praise the Lord that he did this for us, right? Christianity isn't a message about you trying harder so maybe you can make God happy and he'll let you into heaven. Christianity is, is, is about, I worship Jesus Christ, the one that does this perfectly, and by grace and mercy allows me to come in based on what he did, right? That's what Christianity is, okay? No. Mark, in his account of this, he says, uh, remember what he, has, what he said? Uh, the guy says, you're not far from the kingdom. When you read the gospel of Mark, this guy was close. The light was starting to get into his heart. Now, our last point here, Jesus interrogates the Pharisees, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, now he's going to quote Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. Okay, so the Pharisees at this time, they believed that the Messiah was just going to be a human that was going to do cool stuff. Like he was going to just free them from Roman oppression. And that's all. And so what Jesus is doing is through this question, what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying, I am the Messiah, but I'm also divine. That's what he's saying through this. I'll explain how. When Jesus takes him them back to Psalm 110, and he quotes this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. That's the Dave, David wrote that Psalm, and he was talking about his Lord. <clears throat> the Sunday school answer at that point would have been like, whose son is the Messiah? You know, David, right? It's just like you go ask the kids back there, like, what'd you learn? Jesus, like the Sunday school answer, right? they would have all known that the Messiah is the son of David and they would have just had that kind of drill, but they hadn't really thought through then why in Psalm 10, 110, does David call him Lord? Okay, if he's just a human son of David, why does David call him Lord? Now, there are a couple of different words translated Lord in the Old Testament. One's Yahweh, and the other one's Adonai. Now, when David calls the Messiah Adonai, He's using a term that only is ascribed to deity in the Old Testament. So he gets these Pharisees. Who's the, who, the Messiah? Whose son is he? David's. Okay. Why does David call him Adonai? Hmm. I never thought about that. He must be divine. You know, is the conclusion, right? But he stumped them and they never thought through that. And so David, you know, and Jesus shut their mouths right there. I think there's an interesting point in that. Uh, 
don't just have the Sunday school answer for things, right? You know, go beyond that. You know, what's Christianity about? Jesus died for my sins. That's great, but there's a lot more to it. You know, go beyond the Sunday school uh, answers here. And praise God that we can get together and study the word uh, together like this, verse by verse, and, and go deeper than a Sunday school answer. So that's what he's done there. Jesus essentially said the Messiah is divine. He's the son of David. David calls him Adonai, and they all are just like, their minds are blown. Whoa, never thought that through. The Galilean carpenter from, from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, right? In America, we have these cultures. We have cultural things that are, you know, baked into our minds and stuff like that. Like, if you've been in Mason City a long time, and, and don't take any offense to this if you live on the North End, but I've lived in Mason City a long time, and there's this stigma of, like, the North End in Mason City. You guys ever heard that? Like, if you're from around here, you say, oh, you're from the North End, you know? Uh, it's, and that's where there's violence and stuff like that. But when you say the Galilean carpenter from Nazareth, you're saying three things, really. Their carpenter's not so bad, but you're saying at least two things that are like light years beyond worse, saying somebody's from the North End. And here you have the Galilean carpenter from Nazareth standing up to the religious establishment and shutting their mouths because of the wisdom that he has, because he's God in the flesh. Pretty amazing. Nobody would answer him a word, and from that day, no one dared question him anymore. Just want to make a word of application before we go, okay? Um, in conclusion, Jesus silenced the opposition. These are the last confrontations in Matthew. Next week, we're going to see the worst rebuke you've ever seen in your life, the woes pronounced on the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is the authority of all things. God in the flesh. And he comes and he says, these are the two most important things for you to get. Have you ever thought that as a Christian? Have you ever been in your Christian walk and you're just kind of frustrated sometimes and you're like, I just want to know what pleases you, God. I remember in the beginning of my walk, I was like that. Like I was submerged in a Calvary chapel into verse-by-verse Bible teaching. We were in 2 Thessalonians and we were in Numbers and we just started going right from where it was at. And I, I didn't get all my questions answered right away because here we're in this in-depth study. It's not getting to the things that, you know, it takes a long time, you know, to kind of get to know the Bible. But have you ever felt like that? Like, I just want to do what pleases you, God. Like, I know I'm saved by grace through faith, and I just want to please you, right? Have you ever felt like that? I just want to know that I'm doing the thing that you want me to do. Like, what's the most important thing I can do? And he says it right there. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Out of the mouth of Jesus. These are the important things. Now, let me give you something very practical to do, okay? Very practical. You can engage in this if you want to or not. Uh, this is the cool thing about a small church is we can, I guess you could do this in a big church too. But very practical. Okay, you live in a house and you have a neighbor probably right, like right here, probably one right here, one right here, 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 and here, maybe. If you live in a neighborhood, how many would that be? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right? If you're in the center. Go this week and just try to like learn one thing about each of them, if you haven't. Maybe you have. I don't know. I've got some friends that they just talk a lot and they, they know everybody. 
try to go grocery shopping with them. It's terrible, you know, like, hey, Derek, man, yo, yeah. It's like, dude, come on. But here's an assignment for you, right? Now, if all eight of them is too much, just, just one of them, just one of them, okay? You want to commit to this? Because, you know, theology is great. You know, you could be like a back to the Bible purist, but until you start like doing what Jesus says, you know, like until we start doing these things, I was just in California and I, I just thought about the whole time I lived out there. I never got to know any of my neighbors ever. I mean, they, most of them spoke like Hindi or something, you know, but just Jesus has called us to do this thing, you know, just to love people. Very simple. Just go knock on the door. Just, you know, you can say something like this, like, um, well, that'd be weird. I was going to say, well, Jesus told me to come over, you know, or something like that. That'd be weird. But you could just say, look, you know, I've been living next to you for, you know, however long and just never really come over to get to know you. And just, how are you, you know, and how's it going, you know? And uh, what's your name? Here's my name, you know. I, here's what I do for a living, you know. And you just try it, you know. It might be uncomfortable, but I mean, literally, you will be putting feet to your theology. You will really be putting into practice that which Jesus is teaching us, you know? And uh, it'd be a good thing. You might learn something about them. They might say, hey, pray for me. They, but you don't have to do all this weird Christian stuff, you know, or, or Christian stuff. You don't have to go over them and be like, are you saved? You know, like, you don't have to do that, you know? Um, you know, how can I pray for you? Yeah, that's confrontational. I mean, you just, just take it easy. Just go get to know them, you know? Uh, that's, that's an assignment, you know? I just want to bring this back to the fact, and we'll close here, that Jesus Christ, you didn't have a, couldn't have a better neighbor than him. He loves perfectly. He only did the things that pleased the Father. He loved with agape love everybody that saw him. He was never frustrated by an interruption. He gave of himself, gave of himself on the cross. That's the most giving thing anybody could do is give their life. And he did that on our behalf. We sit here today because he loved the Father perfectly and he loved his neighbor as himself. And we sit here justified in his righteousness. God the Father sees you as someone that's loved him perfectly and someone that's loved their neighbor sacrificially. And God sees you as that here today. You know that? So many Christians are focusing all about how they fall short all the time and they don't spend enough time about thinking about the fact that God sees you perfectly righteous in his son. And for that, we'll pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you for that righteousness that's been given to us. Father, I pray for anybody that doesn't know you here today or maybe somebody that's never come to you based on your grace, Lord, trying to appeal to you with their works and uh, trying to make themselves good enough, Lord, that today would be the day to just drop that and just receive the righteousness that comes through Christ. Thank you, Lord, for that great exchange. He took my sin and I take his righteousness. I thank you, Lord, that I'm wrapped in that today, that we're wrapped in that today. Thank you, Lord, that you were the perfect neighbor, that you loved the Father perfectly, Lord Jesus, and you did always the things that pleased him and what he said. And we're so grateful that we're in you. Lord, bless our neighbors. Father, I can think of some of their faces right now and see them with their walkers and watering their lawns and letting their dogs out and doing their different things. And bless our neighbors, Lord. 
I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you saw fit in your wisdom to put us here in this town, in these neighborhoods, in these places at this time. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you that you go with us everywhere. I pray for everybody here. God, bless their week richly, Lord. Bless them with a deeper, more profound understanding of your love for them. Thank you that we're wrapped in your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.